Recording is in progress, apparently. Good. Okay. So, first of all, welcome to all of you. My name is Karine Mogg. I am the director of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. It is the Meter Center that has been hosting these webinars over the past year. And we're delighted to welcome you to what is now our third Reformation Conversations in 2021. We had a very successful session on worship in the Reformation in February, and then on trends in Reformation studies in April. And now we are turning to the world of the French Reformation, the French-speaking Reformation, focused on France and the Pays de Vaux and Geneva. And we are delighted to welcome two highly knowledgeable scholars today, Phil Benedict and Michael Bruning. Each of these scholars, has recently published a book engaging with this topic, and it's my great pleasure to introduce them to you now. So I'm gonna introduce each of them, then give us a little bit of overview of how the session is gonna go, and then each of them will take uh, the chance to speak. So starting with Michael Bruning. Michael Bruning is currently Associate Professor of History at the Missouri University of Science and Technology in Rollo, Missouri. He joined the faculty there in 2007. So he has just learned last week that he will be promoted to full professor in September. So congratulations to Michael. We're very thrilled about that. He obtained his PhD from the Division of Late Medieval and Reformation Studies at the University of Arizona in, 20, in 2002. He is the author of several books, including Calvinism's First Battleground, published by Springer in 2005. He has published an edited collection of the letters of the reformer Pierre Viret. He also published a very useful Reformation source book in 2017, and there's probably a number of us who have used that work in our classes. His most recent book and his presentation focus for this afternoon is Refusing to Kiss the Slipper, Opposition to Calvinism in the Francophone Reformation, published by Oxford University Press in March of 2021. And welcome, Michael. We're delighted and looking forward to hearing from you. Before that, however, I want to introduce also our second presenter, Philip Benedict. He is a professor emeritus at the Institut d'Histoire de la Reformation in Geneva, where he served as director from 2006 to 2009. Prior to his time in Geneva, he was professor of history at Brown University, where he taught from 1978 to 2005. He obtained his PhD from Princeton University. He is the author of numerous articles and book chapters on various aspects of the Reformation in France. His books include The Faith and Fortunes of Francis Huguenots, Ashgate, 2001, Christ's Churches Purely Reformed, A Social History of Calvinism, Yale University Press, 2002, and most recently, in August 20th, all right, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. I'm now back. Um, now we're getting feedback. Paul, make sure you're turned off your sound, eh? Okay, let's see. No, that's not working now. Somehow we've got a... All right, let's do this. I don't want to have an echo going the whole time. That might be better. Yeah, that must work. Okay, good. So, sorry about that. Technology. Philip Benedict's book um, is called Season of Conspiracy, Calvin, the French Reformed Churches, and Protestant Plotting in the Reign of Francis II, 1559 to 1560. It is published by the American Philosophical Society Press in 2020. And welcome, Philip. We are delighted and again, eager to hear your insights and share in the discussion. So here's what we're gonna do. Each of our two presenters in turn will start by outlining the key points uh, of their respective works. 
Then we'll have a three-way conversation discussing some of the themes in greater depth. And then we'll open up the session to your comments and questions. Uh, so that's where you will use the chat function rather than mute and unmute and kind of deal with that. Post your questions and your insights in the chat and we will get to a many, as many of these as we can. And then at the formal end of the session, and we go for about an hour and a half, um, the recording will be turned off. And then, uh, and this is the advice of another colleague who was part of the session last time, uh, we're just gonna have an informal time of conversation. So if you wanna stick around and just chat for a while and say hi to your friends, that's the opportunity to do it will be at the end of the formal presentations. But for now, I'd like to ask Michael to start us off and introduce the main themes of his work to us. Great, thanks, Corrine. Thanks for the invitation and uh, really great to see a lot of you. Um, uh, even if it is just on video. Um, so I guess uh, I'll, I'll start just explaining the title, right? So uh, here's the book, uh, Refusing to Kiss the Slipper. Um, so of course, kissing the slipper was what one did uh, during an audience with the Pope. But I've taken the title because I've found uh, four instances, separate people involved, uh, where they use the, this phrase uh, in French, baiser la pantoufle, uh, all in reference not to the Pope, but in fact to John Calvin. Um, and I thought that this was, uh, I thought it would make a good title, uh, and, but I also chose it because um, although Calvin's opponents disagreed with him on several uh, different points, the, the dominant belief that most of them really shared was that he had set himself up uh, like a new Pope in Geneva who would tolerate no opposition uh, and who insisted that he alone uh, knew the correct interpretation of scripture. Um, as one of his opponents, uh, Francois Baudouin puts it, and I cite this in the book, uh, quote, tyranny is intolerable in the church. Now, there are others who also understand what religion is. You, Calvin, err over and over again if you think that whatever pleases you is right. And so it's these others uh, that Baudouin refers to who know religion uh, that are the subject of, of my book. Um, so in essence, what I'm trying to do is tell the, uh, tell a new narrative in some ways of the, of the Reformation in Francophone lands from the perspective, not of the Calvinists as it's usually told, but from the perspective of their opponents. And I guess my fundamental historiographical critique is that, is that the existing historiography is still pretty much told from within the Calvinist, from the Calvinist perspective within a framework established by Theodore Beza 450 years ago. Uh, it is still, broadly speaking, the story of the steady construction of a Calvinian Reformed Church, first in Geneva and afterwards in France. And so in this traditional narrative, Calvinism is the default position for pretty much all French Protestants. Uh, and his opponents, when they're treated, are usually treated as idiosyncratic uh, voices of dissent. When his opponents are discussed, it's always Calvin and Bolsec, Calvin and Caroli. It's always one person. But but I want to look at uh, at the networks of opponents. Uh, these these individual opponents were not always by themselves. In fact, frequently they were not. And so my book discusses uh, essentially four networks of, of non-Calvinist Francophone evangelicals. Uh, first, the, the French evangelicals who wanted to reform the church from within. Uh, second, uh, Calvin's opponents in the Suisse Romande. Uh, third, Sebastian Castellio and his followers. And fourth, uh, Jean Morelli and uh, his supporters in France. Uh, 
some overarching points to highlight. Uh, as I just mentioned, I, I, I try to focus on networks or groups rather than simply individuals. Um, second, uh, the differences they had with Calvin uh, developed sometimes over doctrinal differences, but just as often over personal animosities. Uh, many, a great many of these enemies of Calvin had one time been friends with him uh, before they did something usually to irk Calvin, which Casey then turned against them, uh, which prompts a sort of interesting chicken or the egg question. Uh, did people hate Calvin because they disagreed with him or did they disagree with him because they hated him? And I, I think uh, you actually have to see the latter was, was, often, was often the case. Um, third, uh, the networks I discuss were, I think, more extensive than scholarship is recognized, and they frequently overlapped. Uh, people in one of these groups I discuss uh, knew about the members in the other groups. They, they, in effect, recognized that they were all part of an international fraternity of Calvin haters. So anyways, um, those are the main groups. I'll, I'll talk briefly about, about each one of these uh, and my, whoops, my, my auto light just moved off in the office, but oh, there it goes. <laughs> uh, so first, the, the French evangelicals. I, I treat these in, in two separated chapters in the book in order to maintain chronology, but um, basically these are all the, the French evangelicals who wanted to reform the church from within. So first, the early evangelicals around the Mo group and Marguerite of Navarre, and then second, those in the 50s and 60s who sought a compromise position on religion. Or from Calvin's perspective, these would be first the Nicodemites and second the Moyenneur. Um, Calvin himself, though, recognized that these were essentially the same group, um, but most modern scholarship tends not to link them at all. Uh, I try to make uh, an argument for, for some continuity there. So the key figures in the first part are, of course, Marguerite and the Mo group figures like Jacques Lefebvre d'Etaples and Gerard Roussel. Uh, in the later group, uh, I discuss chiefly Jean de Montluc, uh, Francois Baudouin, and Charles Dumoulin. Uh, Montluc was the Bishop of Valence. Uh, Baudouin and Dumoulin were, were both lawyers uh, who were heavily engaged in religious questions too. Uh, in the first part, um, partly following Jonathan Reed's uh, book on Marguerite, uh, my argument is that contrary to older scholarship that painted Marguerite and her associates as wishy-washy, weak, or fearful, their decision to remain in France and push for reform from within was fundamentally strategic. Uh, we have to recognize that their goal was, was state-sponsored, nationwide evangelical reform. And this, of course, simply was not possible if they fled the kingdom as Calvin wanted them to do. Um, and so they embraced Nicodemism, uh, as Calvin would call it, not out of fear, but in fact, I think, out of, out of hope. Uh, hope that by staying in France and pursuing steadfastly evangelical reform, the entire kingdom eventually uh, might be reformed. Uh, and I argue that this attitude carried over into the late 1550s and 1560s with the Moyenneurs, uh, whom I label instead uh, Gallican evangelicals. I'm not married to this term, but I, but I think it I use it because it avoids first the Genevan-based language, which I'm trying to get away from, and it also, in effect, captures their goals to preserve the French church, the Gallican church structure, uh, and a Gallican church pretty much free from Rome, uh, but also reforming it along evangelical lines. 
Uh, Montluc, uh, for example, was a bishop like Gerard Roussel, who worked uh, for diocesan evangelical reform. Uh, Baudouin, who had one time served as Calvin's secretary, uh, he worked behind the scenes with Antoine of Navarre uh, towards finding a compromise solution at the Colloquy of Poissy. And uh, Dumoulin was a Parisian jurist who fled the kingdom for religious reasons, embraced reform Protestantism in, in Switzerland and Germany, uh, before ostensibly returning to the Catholic Church. But I argue that he consistently supported and propagated uh, Protestant doctrine, uh, while at the same time turning sharply and bitterly against the Calvinists in France. I should begin the section on Dumoulin with one of my favorite quotes from him. It's from his book, uh, Against the Calumnies of the Calvinists. Uh, that encapsulates, in, in some ways, the basic theme of my book. Uh, he complains, quote, uh, to the Calvinists, you have publicly dogmatized and spread everywhere this new article of your faith, namely that one must be either papist or Huguenot. Uh, for him, religious identity, identity in Francophone Europe was more complicated than that. I think it should be for us, too. Uh, the second major group were the uh, anti-Calvinists of the Suisse Romande. Uh, key figures here are uh, people like Pierre Caroli, Antoine Marcourt, uh, André Zebede, and uh, Jacques de Bourgogne, the Seigneur de Falais. Uh, my main argument here is that from 1536, in essence, two main networks of evangelicals, Calvinist and anti-Calvinist, developed in the region, which were also divided mostly along geographical lines. And so you get in the key cities of of course, Geneva, Lausanne, and Neuchâtel, Calvin, Viret, and Ferrell leading the Calvinist faction. But I argue that in most of the rest of the region, the pastors tended to be anti-Calvinist. There were various reasons for their opposition. Uh, most, mostly it stemmed initially from the fact that they held Zwinglian views uh, that predated those of Calvin on certain issues, especially the Eucharist, church-state relations, discipline, and the power of the ministry. Uh, second, their op opposition galvanized uh, in opposition to the persecutions of Bolsec and Servetus in Geneva. And third uh, was, I think, in this region more than any other, the, the, the personal hatred of Calvin that entered into it. These, these people all knew Calvin personally and, and had developed a, a serious dislike for him personally, and that bled over into their, into, into their theological opposition. Uh, so some of the highlights in, in these chapters, uh, on first on, on Caroli, I think it's now clear, largely thanks to the work of Reinhard Bodenmann, that he wasn't alone, he was not isolated. Um, he had supporters, uh, Jean Lecomte, Thomas Malingre, Antoine Marcourt, were all his friends. Uh, and in the controversy with the Calvinists over his accusations of Arianism, they saw Caroli playing the Orthodox Athanasius to Calvin's heretical Arius. Um, uh, so, so he was not simply isolated and off by himself. Second, uh, Zebede, I think, is one of the most underappreciated opponents of Calvin. Uh, he appears hundreds of times in the letters from the period, and yet most literature on Calvin ignores him entirely. Uh, I argue that by the early 1550s, after his conflicts with Virhey in Lausanne, he emerged as the de facto head of the anti-Calvinist faction in the region. Uh, and third, uh, Zebede then was supported by Jacques de Bourgogne, the Seigneur de Falais, Calvin's former friend who broke from him over Geneva's persecution uh, of, of Bolsec in, in Geneva. 
After which point, Fallet, uh, in effect, transformed his estate at Veji into a center of anti-Calvinism uh, in, in the Leman region. Um, uh, Zebedee, from there, then took their complaints about Calvin to Bern, which in 1555 basically uh, published a ban on all things Calvinist in the Pays de Vaux. Uh, there was to be no preaching on predestination, no taking communion in the manner of the Calvinists, no using Calvin's institutes at the Lausanne Academy, and in fact, no books of any kind by Calvin were to be tolerated that were deemed contrary to Barron's Reformation. Um, this decree in April of 1555 was, was I think, really a bombshell, and, and several of the other opponents refer to it later on uh, in their anti-Calvinist works. Uh, and uh, it also, I think, leads us to question the importance of the year 1555 uh, in terms of Calvin's victory in Geneva. Of course, it's always portrayed as, as his great victory there. But, but if we look outside the city of Geneva, uh, I argue that it was an absolute disaster for Calvin. <laughs> he lost almost all of his influence in the Vaux. Uh, he cut off correspondence with Bullinger for almost a year after this. It, it really was a, was, a, was a down year for Calvin outside the city. Uh, third, I look at Castellio and his followers. Um, Castellio himself, of course, needs no introduction to this group. Uh, so I'll just move on to the main points I discuss here. Uh, first, um, this is not particularly new, but, but Calvin and Castellio disagreed on far more than uh, the Servetus execution and the question of persecuting heretics. Uh, Castellio embraced uh, the idea of universal election. He opposed Calvin's doctrine of predestination. He took a semi-Pelagian view of justification and perhaps most striking of all developed what I think we can call a proto-rationalist uh, biblical exegesis. Um, my other main goal in this section is to show the various places where Castellio influenced Francophone Protestantism. Uh, these included most importantly, uh, the Pays de Vaux. He, he did have this one place where the networks intersect. He had strong relations with Zebedee and Fallet and, and others in the region. Uh, he also had several followers in a, in a mostly ignored region, the, the Comte of Montbéliard, uh, which was under the Dukes of Württemberg, but was a French-speaking region, which never went Calvinist uh, over many hundreds of years, I think. Uh, he also had um, supporters in France. Um, Eugénie Droux uh, points to a clandestine Castellonian uh, church in, in Lyon uh, around, around the year 1560. Uh, and he had sized to every several other individuals in, in the kingdom. And I, I do highlight one in particular, um, not terribly well known, but the, a, a Castellionist in the city of Poitiers, uh, Jean Saint-Vertunion de Lavaux. Uh, and I hypothesize that, that Calvin's fear of Castellionists like Lavaux gaining a foothold in the French churches was an important factor in the development both of Geneva's missionary program to France and in the formation of the, of the synods of the French Reformed churches. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that the very first missionary sent from Geneva to France was sent to Poitiers, where Laveau was, was active, and also the uh, first proto-synod was held in the same city. Um, so anyways. Uh, finally, uh, I discussed Jean Morelli and his associates. Uh, Maury Lee himself, again, relatively well-known thanks to the work of Robert Kingdom, Philippe Denis, and Jean Roth. Uh, he first crossed Calvin and Beza in, in Geneva in association with the Amboise conspiracy that, that Philip talks about in his book. Uh, but of course, 
he uh, mostly earns the, the enmity of the Calvinists with his 50, 1561 treatise on Christian discipline and polity, uh, printed, by the way, by a Castellionist in Lyon, uh, Jean de Tourne. Uh, and in the book, he, of course, argues for more, more local control of the churches. I, I do quibble slightly with Kingdon's description of him as a congregationalist, with, which has been picked up in almost all the English language about Morelli. Uh, Kingdon routinely translates Morelli's French Eglise as congregation, uh, but, but Morelli does not, in fact, argue for putting control over church affairs in the hands of each individual congregation, but with each larger metropolitan church. Uh, so, so for Morelli, all the congregations around Paris constituted a, a single Eglise for him, a single church. But in any case, more importantly, I try to show that Morelli had some significant support, both among the Huguenot nobility and uh, among a number of pastors. Uh, he counts among his supporters uh, Francois Perroussel, who headed the French church in London for a while. Uh, he, Perroussel was also a friend of Castelio. Uh, also, Hermès de la Haye and his patron Ode de Coligny, the Cardinal of Châtillon, Later, the famous dialectician Petrus Ramus appeared beside him at the 1572 Synod of Nîmes. Morelli was friends with Hugues Serrault du Rosier and uh, his colleague Pierre Baron, who later became Peter Barrow in England and led uh, an anti-Calvinist faction there. Uh, it seems that, in fact, Admiral Coligny uh, supported Morelli for a time, uh, and perhaps most famously, of course, Jean d'Albret hired him as tutor to the future King Henry IV until Beza successfully prevailed upon her to dismiss him. Much to her chagrin, she thought he was a much better tutor than any of his previous teachers had been. Uh, and so uh, Morley's group too was uh, no doubt a minority among French Protestants, but they did have some significant support, uh, which is I think reflected first in, in Beza's correspondence from, from the mid sixties is just filled with, with, with stuff about, about the Morelli affair. And also the French synods had to repeatedly condemn either him or his ideas uh, as they came up in France. Uh, and so, uh, so those are the four main groups I, I discussed uh, and I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, we can of course come back to, to other or overarching issues but, but that's, that's my book in a nutshell, I guess. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. And I think that's a really good starting point to, to talk about the themes of your book. So now we'll ask Philip to take the floor and fill us in on his work. Okay, thank you very much. Can you all hear me? Yep. All right, good. Um, thank you so much for organizing this. I think pairing my book with Michael's is a very interesting pairing uh, for one thing. Uh, both of us in different ways are reacting against an established historiography that seems to draw very heavily on Genevan sources uh, and Genevan perspectives and trying to get at uh, a wider story. But my book is different from Michael's in that uh, it focuses a very short period uh, and offers a deep dive into uh, some important political events of the short reign of King Francis II of France, that is to say, ruler from 1559 to 60. Of course, many of you are familiar with this period. Others may be somewhat less familiar, so excuse me if I provide a few more details for the unfamiliar. Uh, 
essentially there are two events that are at the uh, heart of the book. The first is the well-known conspiracy of Amboise, March 1560, where hundreds of men gather secretly in the woods around Amboise in an effort to seize the king and remove him from what they believe to be the excessive control of the House of Guise, uh, who would then be brought to trial for maladministration in order to force changes uh, in policy, especially presumably religious policy, uh, and new, more toleration for the new reformed churches. Uh, this uh, fails, ends in numerous executions. Uh, and then the second event is far less well known, uh, where the conspiracy of Amboise uh, made its way into every history of this period from that time onward. The uh, <clears throat> Affair of Maligny or conspiracy of Maligny, as it's uh, various, variously called, is much less well known to the point where very few biographers of Calvin uh, even happened to mention it. This was a plot to take control of Lyon in early September uh, 1560 uh, to make Lyon the place where an estates general would assemble to assert its power to control the regency government that the supporters of conspiracy believed was necessary uh, during the reign of the 15-year-old uh, Francis II, uh, and the estates would then presumably remove and bring to trial the Guise. This is an event, uh, a plot, uh, that uh, was actually canceled uh, at the last minute, uh, but the arms and men that the conspirators had smuggled into Lyon were discovered, the men had to fight their way out of town. Uh, several were arrested. And in fact, this is not uh, the end to plotting in the period uh, because uh, the reason why the plot against Lyon was canceled was that uh, Calvin uh, and Beza and, and perhaps Anthony of Navarre thought that uh, there was a better plan yet that they could uh, advance, which was to have Anthony finally assert, as Calvin had been pressing him to do, his claim to the share of the Regency government that he should have as first prince of the blood, uh, and assemble a large number of uh, armed nobles in a great cavalcade that would go to court and essentially uh, impose his power there. But ultimately, he decides it's wisest not to do that either, and uh, they are left hanging. I call this Protestant plotting. Uh, initially, it might have been described, was described by many uh, Protestant historians as uh, aristocratic plotting. Uh, and since the events themselves, the essential questions in understanding them uh, have issues. Were the conspirators moved essentially by Protestant concern to win toleration uh, or even perhaps impose their faith or some kind of guardianship on the king that would lead to his adopting uh, a Protestant uh, faith? Or was it driven by personal antipathy to the Guise and uh, aristocratic anger uh, at their uh, maladministration? Closely tied to this is the question of, was it the underground reformed churches uh, 
uh, then taking shape in France that played an important role in organizing it? Or was it a strictly aristocratic sworn conspiracy uh, led uh, by uh, a number of aristocrats with the Prince of Condé, Antoine's brother, as the so-called chef muet, that is to say, the man who would step forward to take leadership should this succeed. Uh, but uh, he was acting in the shadows and the actual organization uh, was led by a certain Jean de la Renaudie. And then finally, what's the role that Calvin and Beza might have played in organizing uh, these conspiracies? That there was a link to Geneva seemed pretty clear from the time that hundreds of people were arrested in the woods around Amboise because quite a few had come from Geneva. Uh, but if Calvin and if the French Reformed churches were shown to have been involved in a plot to kidnap the king, well, that would cement the association between Protestantism and sedition that those hostile to the Reformation had been claiming was a reason to be very wary uh, of Protestant doctrine since the German Peasants' War, at least, uh, and a position that, of course, Calvin had gone to great pains to rebut uh, in his institutes and its dedicatory preface. Uh, so after the failure of the Amboise conspiracy, an important pamphlet campaign uh, was launched by participants like Francois Ottman to present the enterprise as one uh, motivated by pure political grievances led by men with a concern for the common good who just happened often, occasionally, it's not said, to be Protestant. Meanwhile, Calvin and Beza uh, went to great pains to deny that they had supported the conspiracy with Calvin writing several letters to other leading reformers at the time. Then a long self-justificatory letter about a year later to Coligny and with both of them even bringing lawsuit uh, for defamation against a man who just returned from France who was saying things that suggested that they had supported and encouraged the conspiracy that man being Jean Morelli, the future uh, advocate of greater democracy, if not congregationalism uh, in the church. Though so these are central events uh, uh, of the reign of Francis I, I've been working for a long time on what I call the critical years of the French Reformation and the origins of the wars of religion. So inevitably, uh, I had to take on these questions in thinking about this period, and as I accumulated uh, more and more information about it, the uh, dominant view, uh, well, no, I, I, let, me, let me start with um, the Calvin's defense with regard to the conspiracy of Amboise. This was that although he knew about the conspiracy in advance, he always had reservations about it so long as the first prince of the blood, Antoine of Navarre, was not involved. He didn't trust the lead organizer, Jean de la Renaudet, in the later letter to Coligny, he calls him and the conspirators a group of knights errant. He tried to talk uh, those whom he knew out of taking part of it, and those who did take part in it left uh, without his knowledge. Well, uh, in terms of the understanding of the event, already in 1922, Henri Neff had taken on this question of Geneva and the conspiracy of Amboise. 
there's a lot that shows up in Geneva archives about uh, the uh, event. And uh, Neff shows that uh, nothing there really contradicts Calvin's claim to oppose the conspiracy. Uh, although there is evidence that Beza was more actively involved in both developing the legal justification for the conspiracy and in giving La Renaudie as he went off to France, a copy of a newly translated palm that psalm, excuse me, that could easily be read uh, as encouragement uh, for uh, the enterprise. Sometime later, 62, I think, uh, Alain Dufour published an article about the Maligny affair uh, that showed that Calvin and Beza were much more closely tied to it than to Amboise. Calvin indeed helped raise money for it, later wrote to Jeanne d'Albray uh, asking her to reimburse the money that he had advanced to Maligny at, so she claimed, her husband, late husband's request. Uh, meanwhile, Beza is in Nérac uh, alongside Antoine at the time that Maligny assembles his men in Lyon. And from there, Beza writes a letter to Calvin that's uh, rather elliptical, but when read in context, seems very clearly to say, call off the Maligny affair. Things are going great here. We are gonna get Antoine to do something even greater uh, very soon. So they are knee deep uh, in this uh, conspiracy and then will be heavily involved in pressing Antoine over the next month and a half to uh, go to court and uh, advance his case with overwhelming backing from uh, the nobility that they claim that he has perhaps misreading uh, the situation. He decides this is unwise to do so, especially after the interception of a key letter and then the discovery of the arms and men in Lyon uh, panic the crown into seeing that a new round of conspiracies is underway against which uh, they need to mobilize as many governors and their uh, ordnance companies uh, as possible. Strike is, that's the state of the historiography uh, when I, in a nutshell, I devote 80 pages of the book to tracing the full development of all of the evident, discovery of all of the evidence and development of interpretations about, uh, about the events. But in a nutshell, that's uh, the situation, although it also needs to be noted that because of the obscurity of the Maligny affair and because Dufour's article was published in Cahiers d'Histoire, the publication of the universities of uh, Grenoble, Lyon, and the greater southeast of France, uh, it wasn't much noted, especially by Calvin specialists, uh, and has often been uh, overlooked uh, even by leading experts with the result that the general depiction among commentators on Calvin's political thinking and political engagement in his period has been to stress uh, his concern for uh, obedience to legitimate authorities, except in situations where there were lesser magistrates uh, empowered to disobey, such as the ephors of ancient Sparta a context that can be taken by analogy to apply to France as well when the first prince of the blood uh, is excluded from a regency government in which he has a position of, ought to have a position uh, 
uh, of leadership. Uh, but uh, indeed, uh, Calvin insists on, on Antoine's uh, active uh, engagement in the letters uh, of his that survive. Uh, and so he can be seen as keeping a distance from those conspiracies until one recognizes uh, the role that he may have played in uh, also financing and encouraging. But as he says in a letter uh, to Bullinger, I believe, uh, trying to restrain Maligny uh, in his side of the activities as well, which clearly involve an attempted armed takeover uh, of Lyon. Well, as I was gathering information towards uh, about this event and uh, more generally the events of the period from 1555 to 1563, which has been my preoccupation for a long time now, uh, I came across one document in particular that really seemed to me to alter how these events have to be understood. This is a legal deposition made under interrogation by a cabinet maker by the name of Gilles Triou, who also went under the alias Gilles Le Gontier, who turns out to have been involved in planning both the Amboise conspiracy and the Maligny affair in Lyon. He would be arrested after the latter event when he is left behind in Lyon after most of the conspirators flee. And in return for a promise that his life would be spared if he told all, he told all or at least a great deal about the, the conspiracy. And what he said was recorded, uh, uh, of course, by the interrogators at the time, but also copied maybe in a summary form and sent to Antoine de Navarre to give him an idea against the evidence against his brother, the Prince of Condé, who was named very specifically by, uh, by Triou Le Gontier, who had in fact been to see him. Uh, uh, sent to Antoine de Navarre in the aftermath of the Maligny affair and uh, the uh, discovery of compromising letters uh, to show him just how much evidence the crown had against his brother uh, and to uh, essentially uh, make him see reason that he should not persist in the course of opposition. Uh, that they feared uh, he might choose to, to follow. A copy of this survives in the archives of the House of Navarre and Poe. And that's extremely important because all of the original pieces directly related to Condé's involvement at trial, a trial uh, that would lead to his condemnation, he's about to be executed when Francis uh, II suddenly dies, uh, all of that information, all of that documentation uh, was destroyed along with the pardon that was granted Condé once the new uh, regime of Charles IX and the Regency government that unquestionably was necessary in that period uh, came, uh, came into effect. So here we have a stray piece uh, that uh, survived, fortunately, in the archives in Poe. It's not a previously unknown document. In fact, it had been discovered uh, and used by a gentleman historian of the Third Republic, uh, only uh, Alphonse de Rouble, only to be forgotten by later uh, historians. 
it's an extraordinary document in that it specifies uh, the actions of Triou in the organization of the conspiracy or the support for the conspiracy, uh, both conspiracies in Lyon and uh, names a lot of names, names that would have been pretty obscure at the time that Alphonse de Rubler wrote. But uh, since then, there's been a great deal of research on Geneva and uh, people close to Calvin. And turns out that a certain number of the people mentioned there are very close to Calvin, which ties uh, the document and the uh, conspirational activity uh, of both, but especially uh, the Maligny affair more closely to him. Can't go into all the details, uh, and the book is full of details about obscure individuals involved in this, uh, both noble and non-noble. All I can do is urge you to read the book for the exciting details and I hope the well-told story that goes along with it, but that's for you to decide. But uh, for the essence of the book's significance, let me read the final paragraph or summarize quickly the final paragraph of the uh, introduction. Uh, the, the, the book compels uh, under, a, uh, alters comprehension of the plotting in five important ways. First, it highlights that the enterprises of Amboise and Lyon uh, are in fact two phases of a single larger conspiratorial undertaking that involves similar people from uh, Amboise to Lyon and then continues even after the Lyon mission was called off. Second, it confer in addition to confirming Calvin's engagement in the Lyon enterprise, it suggests that if Calvin and the other Genevan pastors did not boldly lie when they sought to distance themselves from the conspiracy of Amboise after its failure, they at the very least engaged in lawyerly evasion. Third, uh, by enabling us to identify many previously unknown participants in the conspiracies, some of them pastors, deacons, or prominent members of important urban churches, other ordinary roturier converts to the Protestant cause, it shows that the plots were more closely connected to the emerging network of the French Reformed Assemblies and less a matter of aristocratic adventurism than most recent literature following an ancient historiographic tradition still asserts. Fourth, it suggests that the conspiratorial activity was characterized throughout Francis II's reign by considerable internal tension. Many of those from humbler walks of life recruited as foot soldiers in the ventures appear not to have been apprised of the full political and military goals defined by the national and regional organizers and ideologues. They believed they were simply acting to gain, gain greater freedom to practice their faith. Among those aware of the larger political aims, tension was persistent between more adventuristic captains and organizers eager to act once they had invested their time and reputation in assembling what they believed to be sufficient support to kidnap the Guise or eliminate them, and the leading grandees and Genevan ministers who each to their own end sought to restrain this eagerness and channel the discontent into the course that they judged most legally justifiable and most likely to succeed. In the end, a strike carefully prepared by the adventuristic elements 
would be called off by some combination of Calvin, Beza, Antoine, and Condé, all of whom were working closely with one another at the time, but among whom the ultimate responsibility for this decision cannot be precisely apportioned. Then the course advocated by Calvin and Beza would be rejected by Condé uh, and Antoine. The aborted ventures came to the attention of the royal authorities. The result was a harsh wave of repression that had Francis II not suddenly died, might well have cost Condé his life and undone the rapid growth that the French Protestant movement had experienced over the immediately preceding months and years. The fifth manner in which the documentation assembled here alters our understanding is that it forces us to reconsider Calvin's political engagement and sagacity. In allowing himself to be convinced for a period that an armed enterprise might succeed and throwing himself into its financing and directing, he may well have helped bring the French reformed churches to the brink of a catastrophe that was only averted by an unexpected stroke of fate. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> that, is a, that is a very, very helpful um, approach into your work, which I had the pleasure of reading uh, for a book review that I'm going to publish. So I'm, I'm delighted to have you speak on this because it, it really, um, it, it's so helpful. What I'd like to do now is just have a chance for the three of us, you and I and Michael, to talk a little bit and ask each other questions or insights. And I guess, Michael, I'd like to start with you. And my question to you is, in studying the sort of the different threads of those who oppose Calvin, particularly in your second group, is there a danger that you end up trying to make things fit together that don't otherwise fit together, apart from the fact that we don't like Calvin? Do you know what I'm saying? It almost seems like we're trying to make a category that might not itself be a category. Can you speak to that? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's always a danger when we group people together and uh, historical persons together in, in groups like this. Um, I, I, I try at least to show where the, the groupings didn't always fit. I mean, for example, Zebede is a really great case because although from very early on, he was, he was a fan of Zwingli and would defend Zwingli against Calvin in from 1538 to 46 or 7, he was still, I would put him in the Calvinist faction. He's friends with Vire, he's friends with Vire, he's friends with Calvin. And it and he doesn't switch over until until later. And so uh, so he was one who was sort of in between, right? He, he mm -hmm. didn't toe the Calvinist line doctrinally, but he was still a friend with, with the Calvinists. Later, of course, he switched. Um, and, and yes, of course, there's, a, I mean, the, the term anti-Calvinist was, I mean, I don't have a better term. I, yeah. I mean, it is, that's a, that's a construct of, I freely admit, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was looking for something that would tie all of these opponents together mm -hmm. uh, in a way that we could, we could talk about them in a, in a substantial yeah. way. So, yeah, certainly they disagreed with one another on, on various things. Um, another good case in point is Francois de Saint-Paul. He was a pastor in in uh, Vouvet, who sharply disagreed with, with Calvin on predestination, but I think disagreed with the anti-Calvinists on most other issues. And so, so yeah, there is, there, there's overlap. There's, there's people who don't quite fit into one group or another. Um, but I think, and especially when you're looking at a region as small as the Vaux, the, there is also a very real sense in which Calvin's opponents 
knew each other, agreed with each other, and worked with each other uh, against uh, the Calvinist influence in the region. And so I think it is worth treating them uh, yeah. as a group together. Yeah, no, I think that's very valid. And, and for sure, it sheds light on a group which has often either not been studied at all or who have been looked at simply from the vantage point of, okay, this is Calvin and then these are the people who he had problems with. So, so doing that the other way around, I think is very, very helpful. Right. Um, and then Philip, as I read your book, I mean, especially the whole Maligny conspiracy, I mean, it, it oh, as I read it, it seemed hard to me that anybody thought this would work, right? I mean, the conspiracy has so many different moving parts. It has folks running around under aliases. It has people turning up here and there with different odd, odd things that they want people to do. Um, it, it feels almost as if it was sort of put together at the last minute very badly. Could you speak at all to the likelihood of the uprising in Lyon having any chance of success? Interesting question. Uh, I think, uh, there, there are really two questions here. First of all, how uh, effectively organized might the entire enterprise have been? And the same uh, question could be asked about the Amboise conspiracy, but it's actually pretty uh, well-structured. They uh, uh, have uh, a leading organizer uh, who sends out agents to other parts of France to recruit, usually contacting leading members of the local reformed church and trying to convince them to join, maybe also speaking to groups of, um, of noblemen separately, but we don't have any direct evidence of that. Uh, they crisscross uh, the country. They have made plans, should the king be taken under control at Amboise to send a number of associated conspirators to major provincial towns, telling everybody there, keep quiet for a while, we'll tell you when to act in association. And it is that network, the survivors of whom, and most people involved in the conspiracy of Amboise do survive despite 60 to 80 executions uh, that follow the event. Uh, the, uh, it's that network uh, of people who uh, are presumably still involved in, and we can say with confidence certainly are, in Lyon uh, in the subsequent uh, organization. And they are in touch with Calvin, who's activating his networks to raise the money. So that they could uh, raise the, the money. I mean, there, there's a, a fairly sophisticated degree of organization. Now, could it have worked? Could the Amboise conspiracy have worked? That's another matter. In the case of Lyon, it's a more, even more of a stretch, perhaps, because you would not immediately be taking the king under your control and arresting the Guise, or I mean, that assumes that the Guise are going to just hand themselves over and, and be arrested when uh, the uh, conspirators uh, arrive at, at Amboise. Uh, but uh, in the case of the Lyon takeover, the idea is that this will then be the town that can serve as a base for uh, assembling an estates general that will initiate the same degree of nationwide support and backing that uh, those involved in the organization apparently believe that they have. Uh, so perhaps the real 
question is, were they realistic in thinking they had as much support as they had? And I think there's the answer is no. And there, there's a fundamental misreading of the extent of anti-Guise sympathy uh, at court and in the country on the part uh, of uh, Calvin and whoever in Paris or at the court are informing him uh, about uh, the general state of play uh, of uh, aristocratic opinion uh, and political opinion uh, in the country. Um, and likewise, uh, certainly I don't think it would have been realistic for them to think that uh, the Protestant churches, significant though they already were in a number of towns by 1560, could possibly be in a situation uh, where they had the uh, kind of military power to be a really powerful player. Late yep. 1561, 1562, they are going to be uh, making a census of their own military capacities and coming to believe that they are really quite considerable at that point, and which is not unrelated to the actions of Beza and Condé uh, in March 1562 at the outbreak uh, of the civil wars as, as well. But yes, I mean, uh, the, the, the plan to take over Lyon uh, does seem like a long shot. An overreach, shall we say? Overreach, yes. yes. So. Absolutely. Better word. Um, all right. Questions between Mike and Philip to each other. Do you have things you want to sort of either commonalities you want to pick up on or questions you have for each other? Do you want to go, Mike, first or should I? Uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll go first, I guess, uh, if that's okay. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, Phil's book is, is great. I, I, I regret I only got it like two weeks before I sent my manuscript in. <laughs> I might have uh, possibly changed a few things. But I think, I think one point, and I think Phil said this earlier, that we, that we both emphasize is how, how influential the 16th century historiography still is on, on, on studies uh, from this period. Uh, uh, the narratives created then by Beza and his allies are, are, uh, are still important. Um, and we can't seem to stop falling back on them. Um, uh, your, your book actually made me, uh, revisit my grad school comp comps. <laughs> I got a question on, uh, Cal related to Calvin and the right of armed resistance. And I, I think my conclusion was, uh, using mostly the institutes that, that, uh, although later Protestants developed a, a theory of armed right to armed resistance, Calvin's repeated, uh, emphases that you cannot uh, resist a, 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 a duly appointed leader uh, showed that that he, it was going to have to wait till after Calvin. I, I think if I had your book, it probably would have come to a different conclusion. But in any case, um, yeah, the great use of, uh, of, of the new sources, the Triu uh, uh, deposition, and uh, I think you proved conclusively that uh, there, there can be no longer be any doubt that Beza and Calvin knew of and actively promoted armed resistance in, in France. Uh, my favorite part, and, and you talked a bit about this, is the, is the second chapter. For those of you watching, right, Phil goes into a very long discussion of, well, I shouldn't say very long, it might dissuade you from it, <laughs> a lengthy, substantial discussion of, of how the historiography has developed from the 16th century to the present day. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a masterpiece in showing how the accepted 
how an accepted historical narrative becomes entrenched so firmly in, in the scholarship, uh, often despite uh, efforts to correct it. Um, he notes, uh, for example, that history is, is a far messier story of starts and stops, blind alleys, and the eternal recurrence of debates, interpretations, anecdotes, and topoi established early on. Um, showing how, so like Dufour's article that, that was forgotten for, for so long is, uh, you know, he makes the good point, but then it gets forgotten because of where he published it. I guess my question uh, for you, Phil, is um, not so much about the conclusions of this book, which I, I think you've proved beyond a reasonable doubt, but, uh, but about a comment uh, you make on the very first page. Uh, you write that part of this is part of your ultimate goal is to write a narrative built from the sources upward. Uh, of French Protestantism. But I think one of the things I hope my book shows is just how, just how biased the source base is uh, towards the Genevan perspective. And so how can one write an accurate narrative from the sources up, as you say, when the sources themselves uh, tell primarily one side of the story? Well, uh, that is one of the huge problems uh, that we face. And I think throughout in, in my thinking about this period, uh, the first thing I wanted to break away from was Geneva-centric sources, because it's precisely uh, works uh, either compiled in Geneva, like the Histoire Ecclesiastique, uh, or uh, the, the correspondence of the reformers uh, that to uh, dominate uh, the source space that is available. Plus, uh, I came to realize in reading the historiography from the 16th century onward, how much the early narratives of the first Protestant historians, including the first histories that are provided of the conspiracy of Amboise, continue to shape uh, views uh, for a whole variety of reasons having to do with historical memory of these events uh, you know, over centuries. Uh, but in, in, that's why uh, I really started to focus on trying to look for sources, first of all, about French Protestantism emanating from within France, not necessarily passing through the Genevan filter. And that's why editing the synods and other such documents uh, is uh, extremely important. It's one way around it. And of course, uh, paying a little more attention to the early Catholic historiography, which historians tend to discount because often it is written in such a uh, heavily emotional and biased language, which the Protestant sources managed rather more successfully to keep in check, if not eliminate entirely, and with much less citation of original documents. But it's, it at least tells you another side of stories and the documentation that is provided by such surviving uh, administrative letters uh, and other government records, court records and so on as do survive. So that's what we have to use, but there always is going to be the problem of the domination uh, in terms of quantity, vividness and so on uh, of uh, the Geneva-based uh, or uh, Protestant documentation. But I, I would say uh, here, uh, and, and this speaks to substantive uh, questions of considerable importance and interest, I so hope to everybody in the audience, that um, I 
two, uh, uh, well, to, to, rea to react to your point uh, that uh, the story has typically been told from a Protestant and from a, a Calvinist perspective. That's true to a large extent, but it is the case that because of the evolution of Francophone Protestantism in the late 19th and 20th century, a lot of the most prominent historians of French Protestantism, um, obviously uh, Buisson in writing about Castelio, uh, who's a good liberal Protestant and very anti-Calvinist, uh, or later um, Emile Léonard, they really are looking for, I think Bernard Roussel too, uh, was always particularly interested in finding the alternative voices to essentially to be able to free French Protestantism from the sort of encumbering uh, specter and heritage of Calvin himself. So there has been a, 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 a search to hear those, uh, those other voices. Uh, and here, of course, um, in an obscure article, Nicolas Fornero and I have written about um, uh, divisions within early French Protestantism, you know the article, um, but what struck us, Castelio and Castellanism is something that has an echo in France. There are a certain number of ministers in France who also don't want to be forced to impose consistorial discipline and exclude people from communion uh, unnecessarily or, or force that discipline upon them. But that, you don't find that many of them either. Uh, and what tended to strike us within um, uh, the documentary record from the French churches is that there are a certain lot of divisions that are just um, essentially personality clashes uh, or rivalries. And that uh, once the system of synods is set up within France, the French church has its own mechanism for resolving disputes. And yet many people, many ministers in France will turn to Calvin and ask, aren't I right? Or synods will appeal to Calvin for his decision. So there is a voluntary acceptance of Calvin's authority on the part of many. Now, many of these same ministers have, may have passed through Geneva and of course they admired Calvin and got along with him somewhat better than Castellio did. But uh, the point is that uh, in fact, there is an awful lot of uh, respect for and um, uh, yeah, respect for Calvin and willingness to follow his lead, um, even as uh, there are points of disagreement as well. Absolutely. Now, uh, do you have anything particularly you want to share for regarding Mike's book? And then I'll open it up to more general questions. Well, uh, there's continuing along the same lines. This would be an interesting topic for the, the two of us to, to discuss quickly. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting about Mike's book is not only does he uh, uh, tie together the stories of a variety of people who've been dealt with separately over the years and show links between them and a rescue from obscurity, a lot of obscure 
followers of theirs, but he, he weaves it into a pretty coherent narrative uh, and one that does recast our understanding of the course of the Francophone Reformation. And he stresses these uh, uh, presentation that um, there's this period when in certain ways it looks like Calvin is being, and the Calvinists are being marginalized within the Pays de Vaux in particular. So he raises the question of why did the Calvinists win in the end? Uh, and there uh, he makes uh, three points that I would agree with, uh, which is that uh, basically Calvin and his allies dominated the major towns that uh, passed over to reform Protestantism in the Francophone first. Neuchâtel and uh, to an extent at least Lausanne because of uh, the presence of Viret and uh, Beza in the academy there, uh, as well as Geneva. Um, although they didn't dominate uh, Montbéliard, but that's not as likely to become a printing center and uh, it's, it's the, the towns that become printing centers uh, that they dominate and that's certainly important for uh, getting the Calvinist message out uh, and not others. Uh, and that the reformed theology of Calvin really offers a very sharp break with uh, the established church and with Catholic doctrine on issues like the Eucharist. So it's the most capable of grabbing people and creating an opposition movement. And then they also uh, effectively marginalize their, their enemies. Um, but I think that there are other reasons why the Calvinists win too. A lot of my work from Christ Church's Purely Reformed On has been trying to think about why does Calvin get as much influence as he does in, uh, uh, in Europe? And there, I think that uh, for one thing, he writes a huge amount and he writes incredibly well, whereas none of his enemies wrote nearly as much. True, they don't have printing presses uh, right there that they have such good connections with the printers to, to get them into print, although they've got printers there, but Calvin is such a, a productive uh, writer and from early on he establishes very good relations with other prominent reformers. Uh, so they respect him and uh, when he needs advice he can call on them and he establishes a network of connections with them. So this gives him a kind of charisma and authority as a recognized uh, interpreter of scripture uh, that none of his rivals at the beginning of their uh, publishing careers at the very least uh, can match. And so it's absolutely true that in, uh, especially in the Pays de Vaux and in Swiss borderlands, because of Bernese influence, he's imposing something that's at odds with certain Bernese church traditions, very hard to get that uh, past and he encounters a great deal of resistance. But in wider areas, it's really going to be towards Calvin and not to towards Zebede that people are going to look. Now, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you know, we, Michael and I have uh, corresponded a little bit about these questions. Uh, and he said, well, none of Zebede's correspondence survives. So who knows how many people might have turned to him. But I don't know if if as many would have, because he just didn't have the, the international visibility and authority uh, as a, an interpreter of scripture that, that Calvin had. 
And it's also the case that Calvin's ecclesiology really lends itself well to the creation of uh, counter churches. If you believe that uh, the ministries are biblically um, specified, then you've got a model for a counter church that can be set up without princely approval. And pretty quickly on, uh, the French churches do construct uh, the uh, structure or the network of synods uh, that enables them to coordinate action among all of the churches and to agree upon a common liturgy and confession of faith and so So it can coordinate the construction of a fairly coherent counter church. Yep. Uh, and that's just a, a sort of, I think it's one of the features of Calvinism, if we want to use that um, slightly oversimplified term, that really makes it uh, such a powerfully expansive movement, especially if, through the creation of, of counter churches. Absolutely. So what I'd like to do at this point is make sure the uh, people in attendance get a chance to ask their questions. So we can just chat a little more among the three of us while people start typing. So start typing your chats. Okay, now they're all coming in in great numbers. So I've got to check here. I'll be reading back and forth and go through the questions. So just give me a minute. So from Jeff Watt, I've always found Castellio, this sounds like it's gonna be for you, Mike. I've always found Castellio to be a most fascinating figure, but this may stem primarily from the fact that he anticipates some ideas, toleration, liberty of conscience, that eventually become axiomatic in our society. To what degree, however, was he actually influential in 16th century Protestantism? Was he often viewed as an alternative voice to Calvinism? If so, was this opposition based on theology, ecclesiology, discipline, or just antipathy to Calvin? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, and, and it is hard to say. Castellio is, is of course, uh, one whose correspondence has is, is been mostly lost and, and with, with great regret. It's... Uh, Phil is absolutely right. There's I, I, my response to him about Zebede is was a little bit flippant. <laughs> Clearly, he didn't have the international stature that that, that Calvin did, uh, but Castellio, to some extent, I think did, and yet uh, maybe not as much. Um, of course, one big difference between Castellio and Calvin is Castellio was not setting out to build a church. He he wanted to influence the the thinking of of Protestants. Uh, but he was not at all in the business of church building. He had a very sort of spiritual notion of, of what, what the church is. But, but it's a great question, part, and partly because some of his most interesting books, I think, were not, in fact, published until after he died. Um, the, the, on, on Doubting and Believing, which is his, probably his most radical book, uh, wasn't published until much, much later, uh, which is also true of the, the Contra Libellum Calvini, uh, where he takes even a more personal uh, attack on Calvin and, and on the question of, of religious uh, persecution. Uh, and, and so his, it's, it's easy for us, I think, to overstate his influence, especially on particular questions that are developed in the books that aren't published until much later. Um, at the same time, I think it's from the correspondence that does survive, and by the way, I'm, I'm actually working on doing an online edition of Castellio's correspondence uh, at the moment. It, only like 30 of his letters survive, and, and many of those are from the uh, prefatory epistles in his, in his published works. Um, so we really have a, have a limited source base to work with uh, on Castellio there. But, but even so, 
Uh, he is corresponding with people in the Low Countries and in the Pays de Vaux and in France and and all over. He has a. I think he was recognized, maybe not as a church leader. I wouldn't say that, but but as. Um, as as a leader of of some sort, right, and especially on the question of of persecution and, and toleration, I think that he did gain a an early reputation and an influential one, uh, even during his lifetime. All right, we have lots of questions lined up. So, from John Balsarek, don't you think much of the adoration and animosity towards Calvin arises from the belief, i.e., his own belief, that he was a prophet? That's well, one of those questions that seems yeah. to open up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. That, that, that's so many of Calvin's opponents, but the animosity part, right? Mm -hmm. um, so many of his opponents point, as I said in the presentation, I think, to, to this notion that Calvin thought he knew everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, mm -hmm. had, he had the right interpretation of, of the Bible, which is essentially his, his self-prophetic view of, of, of things, I, I think. And so certainly that's where a lot of the animus against Calvin is coming from. Um, yep. Did people admire him for that? I, I, I think that's, that's true to an extent too. Um, one of the other issues I raise in my conclusion about why the Calvinists won uh, is that Calvin provided very clear answers, right? He, he had an answer for just about everything. Uh, and, and people like that. They, they want people to tell them what the right answer is. And Calvin was always ready to do that. Uh, whereas Castellio was, well, it could be this. <laughs> it could be that, exactly. It's yeah, unclear, it, right? It so. makes it more challenging, no question. Um, Philip, I think the next question is for you. Well, if I can just jump in on yep, that. Go ahead. Yep. Mm -hmm. The other thing, when you read Calvin's correspondence and what he says about people, I mean, he's so dismissive of the lesser intelligence. I, who was it? Was it Bruce Gordon who, who wrote, he thought he was smarter than everybody he, he met, and he probably was. Uh, but uh, the, the, there was, there is a, just a degree of, of, scorn and dismissiveness even to allies mm -hmm. uh, that surely communicated itself even more strongly to those uh, with whom he disagreed or fell uh, with whom he, uh, he separated like Castellio where the first uh, conflicts really are over appointment uh, small matters of biblical interpretation but also appointment to a pastorship in, uh, uh, in Geneva. No absolutely. Um... The next question from Louise Aurore seems to be for you, Phil. What was the influence and involvement of English agents in the Amboise conspiracy? I know you talk about that somewhat. Uh, another uh, much debated uh, question. Um, the ambassador Throckmorton is very aware of uh, the plotting that's going on and would communicates this to Cecil and would clearly like to see Queen Elizabeth uh, get involved, but, uh, and there definitely are uh, direct connections, uh, communication of information and uh, possible, uh, well, not transfer of, of men and money, but attempts to coordinate uh, between uh, what's going on with the conspirators in France and the Covenanters uh, uh, at the same time 
uh, in uh, know, the, the lords of the congregation, excuse me, uh, in Scotland. Uh, but uh, the, uh, on the ultimate question of whether uh, Queen Elizabeth finally came around and sent money, as has been suspected by some, uh, to the uh, conspirators, there's no evidence that, that that is the case. So her diplomats, her more strongly Protestant internationalist diplomats would have liked to uh, encourage this, but um, uh, she probably kept her distance. Yep, yep. All right, um, comment from Jill Faleson. Could you make the argument that Calvin was more influential long-term on an international level? since Bern was more influential on the outskirts of Geneva and the Catholics were also there. Did Calvin really win? Well, let's say, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, and in, well, again, going back to Montbelliard, which I think really is an interesting location where that could use some more work. He clearly does not win there. In the Pays de Vaux, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and chapter four, I think it is basically saying the Calvinists lost there because in 59, Viret is exiled along with almost the entire faculty of the Lausanne Academy. They, they go to Geneva, mostly from there into France. Mm -hmm. And the Bernese replace them with uh, good Zwinglians from the German speaking lands. Um, there really was a period when, when Calvinism uh, dies in, in the Vaux. However, I, I, I think, and I've, I'd have to do more work on this, but I, I've written in other places that Beza is later influential in sort of bringing the Bernese back into a more Calvinian line. Um, there's a synod in 1582, something like that, uh, where Zurich, Bern, and Geneva all seem to work together to, to adopt a more, a more Calvinian uh, perspective on, on the contested issues like predestination mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. But yeah, it's, it, it, it is a good question, and uh, I think certainly in France, Calvin's ultimately uh, very successful. But in some of these other regions, it's it's not as uh, as decisive. Right. Another question. This one from Preston Hill for Mike uh, regarding the first group you discussed. In contrast to Calvin, I've been continually delightfully surprised by how unoriginal the young Calvin was in his theology. He reads very Lutheran, Lefevrian, even Farellian. If this is the case, then how are we to square Calvin's roots in early French evangelicalism with his later rejection of Nicodemism? Yeah, um, he, I think, and I think people have written. On this, a few, there's an interesting recent book by Natalie Sesh, it's a very huge book on, on Calvin on, called Calvin on Polémique, sort of talks about the early Calvin and his, and his transformation after he gets to Geneva, um, in which he does change, right? I, I think there's that old trope that Calvin never changed his mind. Well, that's not true, right? He does change his mind, and especially uh, in, his early, in his early phase. Yeah, he was among Marguerite's circle, tangentially at least. Uh, and he was, uh, I think I may have used the phrase, I can't forget in the book, but in an article that he was a Nicodemite. He was in France uh, believing, we think, evangelical doctrine, but but perhaps still part of the, the French church. Uh, but he does, he does change. And he did take many of his ideas. I, I point out, because uh, I do have a chapter on the development of the Calvinist network too. Mm -hmm. And one of my main points there is that really Farrell is very important in, in Sort of breaking from the idea that the church, the existing church, can be reformed from within. Mm -hmm. He he leaves 
the French behind. Uh, he decides that that the mass is absolutely to be avoided, uh, and and he really offers a a, a kind of anti Nicodemite argue argument before before Calvin really does. Um, and so Calvin did take some of his ideas from other the other others of these reformers. At the same time, uh, when Calvin gets to Geneva, he he uh, turns sharply, I think, against his former Nicodemite roots uh, and adopts Farrell's uh, ideas about that, but then introduces uh, other ideas that broke from the, from the Zwinglianism that was common among the French-speaking pastors in the Vaux. Uh, he brought Farrell and Viret on board, but, but not the others, not many of the others, anyway. Yeah, I mean, you have to think that he's, to have Calvin be original would be kind of difficult. I mean, he has to be influenced by people along the way. That's just the way it is. He's a second generation reformer. Um, from Jan Klock, um, thank you, Michael, for your presentation of your book. What interests me is how do you establish the networks of opponents? What criteria are to be used to make the connections? Is it by correspondence between people or other forms of context, doctrinal perspective, geographical criteria. So he's looking for kind of more information. What makes a network of opponents? Yeah, well, great question. And uh, it, is, it is difficult, and especially because the correspondence from most of these people does not really survive. Um, you know, I, I came to this by working on the pay of I probably would never have written this book had I not written my first book on the pay of right? <laughs> um, and it's because there, and then the, my, my VRA edition, just, that was really, I think, what crystallized the idea that not only were there Zwinglians and Calvinists in the Pay de Vaux, which I talked about in my first book, but that there really was a, a, what seemed to be a kind of almost organized opposition to the, to the dominant Calvinist faction. And, and so you, you do have to I think tease your way around it. You just have to look at, I mean, first it's gonna be geographical, uh, I think. Um, and then you have to find where people are actually working together. I mean, most of the correspondence I use for this book doesn't come from the anti-Calvinists, it comes from the Calvinists, mm -hmm. uh, because that's what survives. But, but they talk about their enemies and when they're talking about their enemies together, um, that gives you some clue that there might be some sort of, of network involved. Connections, yeah, exactly. And a last question. Can I, can I go ahead? Just go ahead. To make yep. a, a larger point of, uh, I think, importance for francophone Reformation studies. If we mm -hmm. want to speak of it that way, the whole question of networks uh, is, of course, raised by Jonathan Reed's very important book on the uh, network of uh, Marguerite of Navarre, which he sees as central to evangelicalism, but. Uh, in tracing networks, I, I think it's important to start from some kind of coherent basis, which could be references to common enemies, that, that's one, but another for Marguerite's network uh, uh, could be uh, the, the evidence of everybody that she patronized in one way or another. Uh, and uh, there are not insignificant number of people she patronized, I believe, uh, who swing in rather different ways as the uh, events move forward, including, for instance, the Cardinal of Armagnac, who becomes a sort of arch-conservative Catholic. Uh, so um, the, there is a risk of uh, seeing 
like-minded people, uh, it's not fair necessarily to introduce this point <laughs> in this discussion since I guess I'm uh, thinking of a critique of Jonathan's work, which is so interesting in many ways, that they, if the construction of the network is not defined clearly through criteria at the beginning, there is a certain risk of uh, imposing a greater unity on, of ideas on the network than may have existed within a uh, human relational network of people who may have different ideas and have been parts of the same milieu and then follow different paths at one point or another. Yeah, I think that's the point I was kind of getting to earlier. So we've one final question to each of you. Uh, one for, from, for Michael from Max Engemar. First, thank you to both of you. Secondly, what about the Genevans themselves, Bonivard, Gruet, but also the less known Robert Lemoine or Jacques Leneveur, who was a money changer? Any thoughts on these people within the Genevan setting itself? Uh, sure, I think there's work to be done there. I, I, I kind of purposely excluded Geneva um, just because so much work has been done on, on Geneva. I didn't want to get into the Ami Perrin and you know, that, that gang. I do bring up... Um, Philippe de Ecclesia and, uh, and Jean Trollier uh, in, in reference to the, to the Bolsec uh, affair. Um, but I, I, I will freely admit that there could well be uh, more opposition to, to Calvin within the city on a theological rather than political uh, basis as well. Um, so yeah, it's, I think that's a, that's a topic for, for a future project. Excellent. Very good. And then from Elisa Jones, uh, thanks to both of you for this wonderful and thought-provoking work. For Phil, after this deep dive into the French sources around conspiratorial planning and the important role of synodical system within France, what is your thinking on the French Reformed Church and the possibilities that at, the, at, that, earlier at that early period, its defenders thought that the uh, French Reformed Church could become the Gallican Church. Hang on a moment, I've got to find the rest of it. Uh, I can't get down to the bottom of my page here. Okay. Um, anyhow, you can hopefully see the question. Right, I do see the question. Okay, good. The Gallican Church with a Reformed King. Uh, right. Even if far-fetched, was this a realistic hope? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's a, a tough question. Certainly, as soon as uh, uh, both Francis II and Charles IX come to the throne, there are appeals made uh, to the rulers to show themselves to be the new Josias, the new Edward, uh, and uh, to carry through a reformation of the church. So uh, one route that because Calvin had always been uh, aware of and continued to appeal to was that of converting the king. And uh, it's very clear from some of the uh, political documents circulated through the uh, synods or the one uh, series of documents relating to the Estates General of 1561 that they hope that the king, the young king Charles IX can be surrounded with uh, advisors who uh, are open to evangelical truths and will bring him around. So that uh, that, I think, definitely is something uh, that they want and pursue. And there's a great deal of jockeying in late 1561 around the question of who is going to be the king's governor and tutor uh, and so on. So uh, 
yes, that's that is something that's that's very much uh, the the goal and something that they are pursuing. I think the uh, likelihood of bringing that about through either petitioning and uh, electioneering for the estates general uh, or through controlling the king's education uh, are actually more realistic than through um, an armed action against the Guise, whether at Amboise or by taking over Lyon. And those are political strategies that they pursue. Uh, and uh, in the moments of greatest optimism, late 1561, early 1562, of January, oh, this is great. If we can just get this to hold, this is sure to be the first step towards our eventual triumph. I think they're, they're quite confident about that. Although Bayes' confidence, Calvin's is always shadowed by the awareness that the devil is at work in everything and you never know what uh, wiles he is going to uh, deploy to defeat us at the last minute. Indeed. Well, that sounds like quite the uh, quite the good stopping point. Um, so what we're going to do now is I'm in a minute, I'm going to turn off the recording. But before that, I just want to thank, first of all, Philip Benedict, and then Michael Burning for your presentations on your books. Everyone has some good summer reading now, you know, if you're looking for good things to read this summer, read those. Um, it's been it's been a true pleasure to have both of you here and to be able to engage with you on these on these great ideas. So Again, I'm going to stop the recording. If you want to go, you can go. If you want to stay and chat, you can chat. So I'm just going to stop the recording now. So let's do that.